you can do it without it, but it really helps, especially in the early days of a business. Like if you're the first product to solve a need, you can just get a ton of momentum. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy Topo Chico, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Justin Mayers, who's the founder of Kettle and Fire Bone Broth, which is a $100 million business, as well as Perfect Keto, and he writes at justinmayers.com. Definitely subscribe. It's one of my favorite business newsletters. He used to work at AppSumo many, many years ago, and he quit after maybe just a few months and has gone on to kick my ass in business, which I am very proud of him. If you've ever wanted to learn about creating your own consumer packaged goods business and entrepreneurship, plus a fun convo, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. One, how did he actually start a few multi-million dollar businesses? Two, what we learned from working together. And three, some of our favorite books. Enjoyed those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive in, make sure you are on the appsumo.com newsletter where we promote the most amazing deals to help you start or grow your business. That's appsumo.com. Before we dive in, also make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash okdork. I know you're already subscribed, so you can skip this part. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Manjo Mandy of India. He left a review saying, this is one of my favorite podcasts. And if you want instant knowledge, no fluff, listen to this podcast. Dude, thank you so much. That was amazing. I love you and every single one of you listeners. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave a review anywhere online. I check every single one of them. What was so busy about today before we jump into that? It was one of those days where it was just like a ton of a ton of calls back to back to back. It's just a lot of stuff going on, like especially with um, with everything Corona. Like we're one of the few businesses out there that are doing relatively well coming out of that. But it just has challenges. You know what I mean? We've been out of stock for we just started shipping like on a finishing shipping our orders from people that ordered six weeks ago. It's just like we had like five X higher sales than normal for two or three weeks. And so we like blew through all of our inventory in an incredibly fast period of time. And like systems weren't talking. And so we thought we had X amount of inventory. We had X divided by three. It was just like total nightmare. <laughs> and then so what happens when you ran out of inventory? We just stopped selling and everyone's angry. We had over $100,000 of refunds last month. That's kind of an interesting uh, contrast. Like you have this huge big ass, like we 5X sales and then the next weeks, you're like, oh, we're 100,000 returns. Yeah, no, it's terrible. I don't know. I'm generally a pretty positive person. And like, at the core, you're like, okay, this is a, it's a product that people want, and people are excited about it. So that's great. Yeah, it, it just sucks for a while. And you just kind of do what you have to to get through it. But it's just not a fun process. You know what I mean? But the thing is, you guys manufacture in America. So what, how did you guys not able to get as much inventory? We had planned for like, a certain amount of volume, right? And then bought inventory expecting like this is the roughly the volume that we'll get if we normally keep two months of inventory which we do you know if we have 4x velocity for two weeks we burned through all of our inventory for the next two months and so we had 5x velocity for two weeks so we burned through basically two and a half months of inventory in two weeks and so we then had to play catch up and like it takes us roughly six weeks to make our product and so it just meant like we're out of stock for a bunch of time. Is there like a black market for Kettle and Fire now? Funny enough, we literally got an email today. <laughs> this is again, part of my day. Uh, we got an email from Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Trade Bureau or something, where someone had accused us of price gouging because someone bought Kettle and Fire and resold it on Amazon for like $24 a box. It was not us. But like, they sent us an email and they're like, 
we've gotten complaints that you're price gouging for X, Y, and Z, which like the state of Wisconsin doesn't allow. So we need you to send us this response. It's like this whole thing, man. <laughs> in running business, and I want to come back to some of the beginning of your story, but in running businesses, it's like the grass is greener. But part of it is you have e-commerce and you've done SaaS and you've done a lot of you know books and, and all these different things. Which grass do you like the best? They're all different. I think like, I think that SaaS is awesome, but brutally competitive, especially the SaaS that we're in, you know, FOMO and CrossSell, it's like Shopify apps are really, really competitive. And since the price of software is zero, a lot of people just want to pay zero. Maybe I'm just not a great tech person or a software person, but I tend to like consumer stuff because I like holding like the product. I like the people that I interact with more in the kind of health and wellness space. And I feel like your competitors are so much weaker in the health and wellness, like food production space where like we're fighting Campbell's, you know what I mean? Whereas when you're in SaaS, like you're now competing against, like, I think all the best tech people are in SaaS and you have like pockets of software where people are super talented. You have like VC with crazy talent. There's like really talented bootstrappers. Now there's like micro PE funds that are buying up and rolling up software tools and like throwing talented operators at them. There's like Vista private equity. It's just everyone talented is in software, which is not necessarily the case in consumer. <laughs> That's a really interesting. It's easier. It's not easier to win. You still have to work your ass off, but you're you're competing on a better playing ground. I've, I've been thinking about that with some of our stuff where how do we just play in our own field? Yeah, it's hard, man. But that's like for right now, that's why I like consumer stuff a lot more. And the other thing is like the default right now in consumer is the average product that someone buys at like a Safeway is going to make them sicker and not healthier. And like the state of our food system and health system in the US is so bad. It's like you don't have to be exceptional to get people to be like, oh, that product's better than whatever I was having before. Whereas I think software, like you really have to be pretty excellent to make like long-term compounding returns and a successful business in software. Well, with the food industry, and I do want to come back to the beginning of your journey, but with the food industry, it feels like sometimes I'm like, has everything been made that can be made? Like I saw chicken skin jerky, there's CBD sleepy soda. I don't know. And I'm just like, has it all been made? But I I know there's probably more. What what are you seeing in the, the consumer market? There's a ton of stuff that's been made, but I think that the reality is that there's still so much more. I mean, you don't have to invent a new thing. You could just look at like, what are people not doing well right now that people would do better? Like one thing that I've been waiting for, I'm not going to do this, but like sour cream is like a billion dollar category. And like no one, no one knows the sour cream brand that they buy. It's like there's one company that does it. It sucks. It uses a bunch of trash product like ingredients. It's just, it's terrible. And so like someone could feasibly build a pretty easily like a $10 million business in sour cream with one to two million in profit a year. And like, that is like a better idea to me than any other software business idea that I have right now. What other ones have you thought of like that? That's really interesting. In food? Or in general? There's all kinds of things. Like, I think that if you ask your mom, like, can I go through your cabinet for a second? Like, ask her, like, what are your health goals? Like, do you want to lose weight? Do you want to have better skin, whatever it is? And then you go through her cabinet, you would just be like, oh man, you're having a ton of stuff in your in your cabinet that is like, it doesn't map with your health goals. And so I think like big macro trends is almost all sauces have a vegetable oil base. You could probably create a better brand just using avocado or olive oil as a base instead. Everything fried is fried in vegetable oil. Swap that out with like a different oil and you could sell it to the paleo keto crowd. There's like a bunch of these things where you could say like, 
again, this is because like Frito-Lay owns the entire snacking category and everything they put in their is going to make you sick. And so you just have this huge opportunity to like rip out the that makes people sick, replace it with a better ingredient and like build a real brand, I think. I swear to God, every time I go to a convenience store, I check the gum aisle. I love gum. Yeah. It's the same one. It's like Trident. I've been waiting for new flavors for a long time. You give me a lot of optimism. And I think you spur a lot of ideas for me and I think for everyone out there, like how many new things can be improved on tech as well as in consumer. Yeah, totally. And I just happen to like consumer and I think I've done better in consumer. So it's what I like. Whereas like you've crushed the the software game for a long period of time, whereas I necessarily haven't. So yeah, (laughs) so I like consumer. I'm a fan. No, I like the consumer thing. I think I've never gotten into like the inventory and, but I think the thing with consumer that's the most appealing, even with software, but just having people use your stuff. Have you ever bartered with your soup? I have. Oh yeah, for sure. That's another cool thing. It's like people in consumer land will, I'll be like, Hey, I love your red light therapy product. Like, can I send you a bunch of broth in exchange for like a red light therapy system? And yeah, we do that all the time. It's dope. When you were starting the kettle and fire, when you're starting broth, did you say like, wow, Campbell's is super billions of dollars? Or were you like, yo, me and my brother just want to start making this, this bone broth no, for ourselves? It, it was definitely like, a, I wanted to start a business, like a side business with my brother. Bone broth was an idea that I had, couldn't find it anywhere and wanted to test and eventually like spin up a side business that he at the tender age of 18 at the time uh, could help run and just like we'd split the money. He was doing a gap year, wanted to learn about entrepreneurship. It was very much like, focused on solving my own needs and what I wanted and not at all like a top down, like who's the weakest publicly traded company that I can try and take down. You know what I mean? You seem like you guys have both been entrepreneurial because like, I think you joined AppSumo at 18? 21, I think. Yeah. How did your parents encourage you and your brother? Because it seems like you guys had some unique things uh, growing up with that. I don't know that they did, honestly. My my parents are, my mom, like stayed at home mom, raised seven kids. So God bless her. <laughs> Thank God it's not quarantine with seven. Yeah. Oh my God. I know. But yeah, then my dad was an accountant for most of his career. And so for me, I think I just had like a crazy year in 2008 where I went to college, like my family moved from, I grew up in DC, moved to Philly. Basically all these things happened and I was reevaluating what I wanted to do with my career and was like in 2008, the financial crisis was happening. And I was like, I don't think I really want to do this sort of normal career path thing. Uh, and so started looking into entrepreneurship and I loved it and met a bunch of cool people, learned a bunch. And so I think when Nick was my brother, when Nick was coming out of high school, he was like, I think I want to do that path instead of go down the the normal like college corporate route. It also helped like he was interested in entrepreneurship when he was in high school. And we started working on Kettle and Fire. Uh, and then I had him apply for the Teal Fellowship and he got in at like age 18. With Kettle and Fire is his thing? Yeah, this is like the second class of the Teal Fellowship. <laughs> what do you recall of your times at AppSumo? I was trying to think about that because you were, you know, you were really early on and I think it didn't work out. What do you recall from your times and how did you deal with it afterwards or, or you know, proceed afterwards? What I recall, I think you just hired like Susan to help kind of run it. It was just a moment of transition where like I was never full time. I was like just a contractor working on the Mint marketing course. I just recall a lot of like change. Like it was, okay, we're going to do this thing, we're going to try and be like Amazon for digital products. And then it was like, well, actually, we're going to do this, you know, and it, was, it just like changed a lot of times from a strategy standpoint, which, you know, I was 22 at the time. So I was like, it was cool getting to meet a bunch of people, learn a bunch, talk to people in the industry. I didn't know like 
if that was normal or not at a startup, which it turns out it very much is. So yeah, I, I recalled a lot of like direction changes. And then I went to work with Jonathan Siegel. And then I think shortly after I like went to work with Jonathan, you guys changed direction and I think like cut down the number of people at the company. But the team was dope. Like Chad and Anton were, were great guys. I remember them well. They're still great. I still, Chad's still my partner today. It's interesting because I think one of the things that you said that I think a lot of people could do is like, how do you put yourself not in a chaotic environment, but kind of in a fast growth environment? And I mean, you've been fortunate, not just at DapSumo, but even to create your own. And it, it, I mean, I got it with Facebook and Mint and, you know, a few of these other experiences. It's a unique experience. Yeah, definitely. Definitely challenging. (laughs) I also remember at one point when I think I'd done like the first version of the Mint marketing course and Susan was like, like, we want to do another course with you name like the highest possible rate that you could want to like work with us on another course. And I was like, man, if I could make $30 an hour, I would be like, no concerns in the world whatsoever. And she was like, really? Yeah. So that was a a fond memory of me vastly underselling myself. (laughs) Well, that's how we get started. I think one thing I was curious for you is like, how have you explored your career? So you got in, I don't even remember how you got into AppSumo, but you helped create courses and then you've written a book, Traction. And then you have FOMO, and then you have Kettle and Fire, and then you have Perfect Keto. And I'm curious from that, especially after Absumo, like, how, did you, were you intentional? Like, for me, I was like, I always run around my own company. That was, so at Mint, I was like, I just want to make 3500 bucks a month and quit. How have you thought about that? That was pretty much my goal, too, is I just wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to, in general, like, have control of my time and not have to worry overly about finances. And so I, I kind of have been, I would say, very opportunistic and not a whole lot of strategy. Like I've seen some people who, you know, I'm 30 now are kind of like, I've known them since they were 22 and they have like very carefully executed on a career plan. And they're like, okay, I'm now at this phase and here's where I want to be at 40. And I'm like, not close to that at all. I didn't think I'd start a bone broth company. I did. Then it like started doing well and I thought I would stay in tech, but I ended up doing this. And like, I have no idea what I'll do 10 years from now, which is a horrible answer. I realized. I don't think there's a right way to live a life. So it's interesting to hear different paths so that we can all kind of just get different uh, ideas of which ways to do it. I guess I'm just curious for other people out there. Do you think they should just kind of keep exploring the things that they're interested in? It certainly made me happy. Like, I feel like a lot of times I will meet people that are kind of doing something that they're not that excited about. Like working in SaaS early in my career was really helpful because I felt like I met a bunch of people that were successful professionally in software, but who I also was like, not really, I didn't want to like trade places with them. Like I met a bunch of people who were really wealthy in their mid to late thirties, but I would never have been like, oh yeah, I totally want your life when I'm your age. I think it was really useful having that experience being like, okay, I don't necessarily want to try and do this software executive path. So I should just try and find something that I'm continually interested in and excited by, which for me was always like trying to figure out what company do I want to start. And that was sort of the, the first question for me is like, I want to run my own company. Let me just find something that works, which is why I did like FOMO and Kettle and Fire and Perfect Keto and all these things. But I think going forward, like after doing these, I would be way more intentional about my next thing. Think more about the space, think more about the people I want to work with, think more about what I want to do over a five or 10 year timeline. But so I, I think that's changed. But for me, it was just starting out. I just wanted to do my own thing more than anything. With that being said, what, what are all the business ideas you've tried? That was something I made a list of this weekend. And I was kind of surprised how many things I tried that did not work, like actually did not just like, oh, you know, sour cream. I think this is inspiring for others that you have to start now, but you also have to realize it's going to take time. So you got to just keep going. 
Totally. Uh, so I tried to buy an email spam business that was doing like a million dollars a year, kind of similar to FOMO in terms of like seller financing and all of that kind of stuff. So that didn't work out. That eventually fell through. I tried to start a website. This is probably the worst idea I've ever tried to do. But when I was in college, I have for years struggled with like, I get like dander behind my eyebrows. And so I bought, it's super weird, but I bought the domain eyebrowdander.com and like 800 people a month at the time were searching on the Google AdWords tool for like eyebrow dander cream. And so I tried to start a website that would sell eyebrow dander cream, not a big enough market. That was a weird one. <laughs> I tried like to do a service where you could, we would work with software businesses and like call to negotiate their AWS cloud bill every month. So try and like negotiate their services down a little bit. Looked at doing a roll up of like two different software companies, tried to buy another Shopify app, looked at doing like a real estate play, looked at starting a like a drug and alcohol addiction app, actually, for people that struggle with that. Yeah, so I like looked at a ton of different stuff. So with Kettle and Fire, and I do want to do your story because there's so many people out there that lost jobs or trying to get inspiration to get started. Did it work right away? Did you guys get customers right away for it? Or maybe let's actually just jump into it. So can you walk through Bone Broth? And maybe let's start at the end, which is like, how much Bone Broth have you sold now in the years since you, you've had it? Maybe you don't have to share your revenue numbers, but like total broth or how many customers? I don't actually know, but we're certainly in the hundreds of thousands of customers. Like we have super big team. Um, we've raised uh, north of $20 million now. We have 30 people on the team. So it's certainly like a very real enterprise. But yeah, I had no idea it would become what it would become. I mean, I, I literally was like thinking it would be a side project. And from pretty much from the moment we turned it on, we kind of launched using this smoke test approach where we were buying ads, directing traffic to a landing page, seeing who would convert. Did you actually have them buy on the landing page? Yeah, they uh, bought by PayPaling me $29, <laughs> which I then refunded. It was like they literally PayPaled it to my Gmail address, uh, which was very sketchy. Who are you targeting? We were targeting at the time, it was very unsophisticated, like anyone who was searching for buy bone broth online, or like, where can I buy bone broth, we would just put an ad up and see if people clicked on it. We basically saw that pretty strong early traction. And then the month that we launched, you know, Nick and I had sort of projected, we were like, okay, we think this business will probably do mid six figures, if everything goes well in the first year, I guess it would be low six figures, like 100 to 200k. And so that was sort of our projection for the year. And on month one, we did like 40 grand. And then the next month we did 60. And the next month, and it just like kept growing. And we were like, damn, this is real. Like this is a very real opportunity that we kind of stumbled into. What most people do, at least in my observations, what 95% of people do is they say, hey, I want to sell this whiz bang thing, like a digital thing, or it's a piece of product. I'm going to spend months building it. Then I'm going to, you know, maybe try to get an investor, find a developer, and then maybe someone will eventually buy it. Uh, and I just thought you, you had a really nice structure to figuring out that this is working and creating an eight-figure business, but doing it in a very, like, quick and, and dirty way. Yeah. So first thing I did is this was sort of me solving my own pain point. And so bone broth was something I wanted. I thought other people wanted it too. That was, like, the genesis of the idea. And then I went online, looked at how many people are searching for bone broth on a monthly basis. Is there like some press around it? Are there influencers who are talking about it? Turns out the answer to all that was yes. And so then I took it the next step and was like, okay, the thing I want to know, especially for me at the time, I really wanted to know that people would pay for bone broth if I went through all the time to like figure out how to make it. And so 
I really wanted to spend a lot of time validating it because I knew it was going to be really annoying for me to try and figure out how to make bone broth at a commercial scale, given that was not my industry at all. And so I spent a bunch of time on like setting up a landing page, buying ads, but was just driving cold traffic to this landing page and saying, you know, if you want this product, it's $29.99. And then just from like our ads to conversion costs, we were really profitable on that smoke test if we ran the numbers. And I think it would have been like a $100,000 business that was very profitable if like just the smoke test numbers worked and we could keep it up for a year. And so we just ran those numbers and we're like, man, this is something people want. All the people that ordered it online, I would like email them and just talk to them and be like, hey, what is this something that you want? Like, what are the problems you're trying to solve? All of them had very similar issues. Like we're struggling with gut health, wanted to improve their skin, joint health. You know, one of those reasons, a lot of them were paleo. A lot of them were in communities and groups that I was kind of aware of, like Whole30. And basically just through talking to these people, many of them were like, this is a product I really want. I'm willing to pay to have someone else source it and make a really high quality version for me. Thank you for like creating this company, which totally didn't exist at the time. And so after we saw enough customers that were telling us how badly they wanted it, willing to pay $30 a box, like that's what we priced the first smoke test for, uh, was literally $30 for like a 16 ounce box of bone broth. I was like, okay, this is solving a real pain point and people are going to be willing to pay for this at scale. And so just decided then to start the 10 month process of figuring out how to actually make bone broth after that. Interesting. I think that's one of the things that I've really liked about starting businesses like with our like monthly one k.com course. It's that once you know that you have people who will pay, figuring it out is kind of like the fun part. It's kind of the easy part versus I think people do the reverse of that. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean, figuring out how to make bone broth is not like intrinsically fascinating to me. And so it was it was way more fun to figure out is this something people will want? And then once you know it is, you can be like, okay, I'm going to solve the problem and I'm going to be able to talk to my customers and be like, what are the price points you would consider? You know, a lot of our customers even, or people that bought it and then were waiting for us to make a product. I don't know what you call that. It's probably not a customer. But that set of people, we sent them samples even of some of our first products. And we're like, hey, how does this land for you? Does it too salty, not salty enough? Does it, you know, just got their feedback on these sorts of things. So that when we actually launched, we had uh, gotten a couple of revisions of feedback, which, was, which meant that we had a much better product at launch. And then was it ads? And that was kind of the initial zero to 100? Yeah, ads and then some affiliate. Like while we were looking for figuring out how to make the product, I started like networking and talking to a bunch of people that were in the paleo wellness spaces. Went to Paleo FX, just like met a couple of people there. And a couple of them were like, hey, yeah, you know, it's literally our job to put cool new products in front of people that are into paleo. So of course we'll help you. And so we built a lot of those relationships and in 2015, when we launched, we were also the first like grass-fed bone broth on the market. And so you had this thing where a bunch of influencers were like, I use bone broth for health, you know, gut health, joint health, whatever. And then they didn't have a product that they could recommend. And like they make their entire living on recommending products and getting paid to do so. And so our product like filled a really nice gap that I kind of became aware of after we decided we were going to make the product. I like this no competition thing that you do. We made this mistake a lot of times where, you know, like we built some of this stuff. We got into the Shopify app world and it was just so competitive. And it's like, how do we win here? And it's like, we don't win in playing with everyone else. So, you know, we, we launched Hall Drop recently, which is how do we just drive Shopify store customers? 
they don't need another email collect tool. There's enough of those out there. Totally. Yeah. I, how have you thought about being like the only people in a market? Because that's something I've I've thought a lot about, uh, and I think it's so important, especially not important. You can do it without it, but it really helps, especially in the early days of a business. Like if you're the first product to solve a need, you can just get a ton of momentum. I felt like that was you guys actually early in the day yeah. at Sumo. There's people like Uber who literally invented a category. Like before there was no way to really hit a button. And, and so now they're worth whatever, 10 billion or $20 billion. And I think those have big risks, big rewards, but big failures. And I think the businesses we've done have been kind of a little less risky, but pretty, okay, there's a clear path that this is working. So we're not, our upside's not as high, but we have a more likelihood of succeeding. I think where we've adjusted, and I'm really excited about our businesses, is how do we play games we can win? So like after we get going, we kind of copy Groupon or Mac Heist, and we kind of figured it out. And then we're like, well, no one's doing software. Let's just go f***ing hard. And sometimes I, I think we've won because one, we, we're professional. And like, I do think sometimes people treat the business like a hobby. It's like what you said, you came into the food world as a professional marketer. Like your subscription stuff on Kettle and Fire is phenomenal, which you wouldn't expect when you're buying a soup. I think the other thing recently with playing to win and playing games you can win. So, you know, SendFox, which is our email marketing for content creators, honestly, there's MailChimp and Aweber, and we're kind of just like the low cost, I don't know, southwest of email. And in the past, that used to like, I, I did that on my, this payments provider, Gambit. But in this email marketing world, it's been, um, we're kind of like, I don't know, the stepchild. It's like, eh, you know, I don't really care about you. But what's been interesting, only recently we said, what can we do that we're innovating on? And we just kind of going in our own path for what we really want for ourselves. So we've been going on this path of how do we help people aggregate their audience and grow it? Because right now, if you think about an audience, like even Kettle and Fire, where's your audience? It's on the web. It's in a store. It's on your email list. It's on your YouTube. It's on a blog post. It's on an Instagram. It's on a Twitter. It's actually really spread out. And there's not a great way of communicating directly with your audience without having to pay for it. And so I was like, oh, I really want that. It's a pain in my ass. I have to do a lot of these things manually. And so it's like, all right, SendFox, let's start doing that. We're not even competing with MailChimp anymore. And frankly, I don't care what they do. And I think that the same with Drop. We built this thing called FAM. I don't know if you, you, saw, you probably didn't see it. Uh, no one did. And so it was basically this like Clavio competitor for Shopify that automatically generates your entire email marketing for you. So in theory, it was amazing. It was like a consultant through software that does all of your email marketing. You don't have to do anything. And there's some learnings there, but we're competing against Clavio, we're competing against MailChimp, and now even Shopify has their own. And people didn't really want to switch. I was like begging. And I was like, well, what do yeah. people really need in that no one's providing? And I was like, well, everyone always wants customers no matter what. And it's like, well, how do you get customers if you're Kettle and Fire or Perfect Keto? There's maybe two or three really ways that all e-commerce brands go. Ads, kissing influencers' asses, maybe affiliate marketing, maybe content marketing, and I guess wholesale as well. And so I was like, well, there's got to be another channel, another way that people can get promotion. And you could see it. Product Hunt did it for software. And so it's like, well, what if we kind of do that, but for products, actual products? And so that's where Hall Drop, it's been doubling every month because a lot of people are saying, hey, I want to be able to grow my audience without having to pay Facebook or Google. That's really cool. And then how are you guys acquiring customers for Hall Drop? So with Hall Drop, there's been a few different things that have worked. It's funny. And that's actually what I want to go into next. It's called Growth Series. Basically, I think what you're really strong at, and I was listening to a lot of your material, is like, how do you break down the different timeframes of marketing? right? Like my zero to a thousand is different than your thousand to 10,000, which is different than your hundred thousand versus your million. And so I think that that's the same with Hall Drop, where in the beginning, the zero to a hundred, let me, before I even tell you, how would you get it? How would you approach or think about it to get maybe your first thousand or first hundred uh, users? Because they're not, they're not customers, I guess, audience. 
I mean, if I were you, I would just like tweet about it. You have a huge audience personally, which is awesome. But I mean, first, you know, zero to a hundred, I would probably just have an offer, get one to three anchor brands that are willing to tell them like, Hey, do you have inventory that you need to sell? Cut us a sweet deal, push it on haul drop. Like we'll guarantee to buy that we buy all of whatever amount of inventory you want to sell. In return, you have to like sell or you have to blast this offer to some segment of your email list that has not purchased anything for the last nine months. So like they're sort of email people that are not worth much to you. You get a bunch of cash for inventory that you're going to write off. And then we get a bunch of customers that like we didn't have before. And yeah, you're taking some financial risk, but like you're also getting in front of some people. I'd probably do that for the first like couple hundred people and then see how well that scaled. If it didn't scale, then I'd probably try and do I'd test like community stuff and then some paid ads too. Just like, can you retarget people? Like if you said, Hey, I've a haul drop deal for kettle and fire. Like, could you retarget kettle and fires audience with X, you know, people that liked our Facebook fan page with an offer or something like that. I don't know, but I suspect the first one would work pretty well, but I'm not positive. All right. So I put it together and I, I want to keep brainstorming. You had this phrase that I thought was really smart with marketing. And I think people sometimes jump to the ads or they jump to, longer term marketing that that is too long. And you said the word hand to hand combat. And I was like, yes, yes, that is such a great phrase, man, where I think especially when everyone's starting out, like the best way to sell bone broth to start is just ask your friends, like, hey, I know Noah, you're into health and fitness. Hey, I know you're a paleo person. Hey, I know you talk about being vegan all the time. Well, maybe not for bone broth, but you know, people who are into health and fitness. And so for us with the first zero to a 1000, and now I think it's doubling every other week or every month, I'm not sure the exact number. So some of the early things that we did, we did a lot of giveaways. So on a similar, we've done the deals ones. The deals have done okay, but they don't bring in a lot of new people. Like AppSumo has been interesting because AppSumo grows a lot through freebies, which is something I know you've talked about, where we like go and negotiate freebies with companies. And, and that's a huge driver. But honestly, for, for Haldrop, it's giveaways. So we either buy it ourselves or we go to companies and say, hey, do you want free promotion? We'll email you know, 12 to you know, 15,000 people. And so that's been a huge one. This one is the sneaky one. It's not sneaky, but this is the one that's been the most effective and kind of, I think what, what, what hand-to-hand compliment means to me is do manual work, but also look at what you can take advantage of within your like sphere of influence. So we have a product called King Sumo, which is our giveaway software. And so it's used by, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people a month, blah, blah, blah. And it's awesome. It's great giveaway software. It's free to use. But if you're a free person on King Sumo, if you're running a free giveaway, we have an opt-in box that says, do you want to receive other offers? those people signing up for giveaways can opt into it. And so every day we email those people, whatever the giveaway is on a haul drop. Hmm, that's really smart. You've built like a really nice network of like haul drop works with AppSumo, which works with KingSumo, which works like, you just have a lot of interconnected pieces, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we built basically just a lot of things that we want ourselves. And haul drop, I mean, I think what was interesting with the fam thing to your point, and something I've been thinking about a lot is I don't have a Shopify store. I don't give a f about a Shopify store. I don't. But what I do care about is like athletic brewing. What I do care about is like Lagunitas. I actually care more to promote this stuff, promoting kettle and fire. You know, that's the stuff I get excited about. So it's saying, why don't I focus on the parts that I really enjoy doing and that I can just, you know, frankly win in. And so Hall Drop doing that, I was like, well, I don't, I don't have a Shopify store, but I promote this stuff anyways. And now I literally just get paid almost to do stuff like that. A few other things that we did, if you're curious, we tried a bunch of stuff so far. We added like multiple logins so you can log in with Gmail or Facebook or Twitter. Daily email. So we have a daily email, like here's the top five products of the day. That's actually done really well to get people come back. We're launching new initiatives within the giveaways. So like 
normally it's just like, hey, refer a friend, you get 10 points. So basically the same woman wins every giveaway because she has the most friends. So we're adding in other things where like if you follow them, you get points. You can go to their YouTube or do whatever. And then on submission, I think the thing that we've thought about, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, is what are the loops of growth, right? So we have two types of growth. We have either a person like myself or you submits a product because you want status. And then after you submit, how do we get you incentivized to want to promote it? And on the other side, how do we get a, a company submit their product like Kettle and Fire and say, hey, we want to be the top rated soup on Hall Drop. So we've basically just been tweaking and tweaking those loops. And they're not amazing, but I think there's a lot of promise there. And then there's a third component of with all the submissions, we're able to rank pretty highly now for some SEO terms because we have all these different like soups and we have different like drones and we have different outdoor stuff. And, and as people are talking about and rating it and you know, submitting it, it creates automatic new pages. That's super cool. What's your long-term goal with Hall Drop? It's so funny you say that. Chad and I, when we did Sumo.com and I f***ed it up, I would say, because we just disagreed on vision and our alignment was off. And with Hall Drop, I disagree with some of the things they're doing, but I agree on the vision. We have clear objective goals. And so it works out that way. But the vision at the end of the day is like, be the number one place online to promote products. The number one. So if you're creating any physical product online, and that's something I've been thinking about. I was talking with the founder of Strava for the show and he said it, he's like, what are you number one in? He's like, you know why we picked biking? Because we couldn't beat everyone in running, but we could be the number one bike thing. Makes sense. I use Strava all the time on biking. He's epic. The guy was so cool. But he said that and that, that really stuck with me. And so I think the different things we do, like AppSumo, the number one place to promote software. Products, like number one place to promote products, Hall Drop. I think SendFox, it's like, if you're a content creator, it's the number one place for your audience. Any other marketing, like from 100 to 100,000, because you guys are now at 100,000. Is there 100,000 to a million? Is it like new product lines? Like, how do you think about marketing now at this scale versus like maybe some of the starting scale? I think about it in a couple of ways. I think like, I think marketing at a larger scale, it's mostly a question of cost. Like the way that I think about it now, there's a certain number of people that know what bone broth is, understand how to use it and understand that they want it in their lives. Like there's just a ceiling on that today. You could say the same thing with coffee. You could say the same thing with tea. Like in our business, there's just a ceiling in terms of the number of people that are aware of your product or aware of what your product category is and how they consume it. So. For us, like we're probably not too, too far away from running into that barrier at some point. And so for us, like I think that the way I think about it is like one land grab, how do we reach everyone and make everyone who drinks or uses bone broth at all, make them aware of like kettle and fire so that at the very least they're making a choice, whether they select our brand or not, like we're in the running for someone's like bone broth choice. Those people are generally like easier to reach. They're researching bone broth, like, and you can just kind of do like the SEO, influencer, email marketing, like all of the kind of standard channels. Beyond that, I think it gets really, really tricky. And this is like something I'm trying to think about for myself and for the businesses right now is like, how do you like grow the bone broth category as a whole? That is like the ultimate marketing challenge of how do you like create or really blow up a category and do it in a way that like doesn't break the bank. You know, we could spend $10 million a month on Facebook ads for bone broth. But like, if all the people that are seeing that have no idea what bone broth is, they don't know why they would have it. They don't, you know, it's not really going to do us any good. There's only so far that you can scale on some of these like demand or like direct response channels. And I think like, how do we create the story and like grow a category is probably a, a combination of like new product. And then also just being way more strategic and long-term thinking around like, how do you change consumer behavior over a long period of time? How do you like 
weave the bone broth story into how people are thinking about and talking about health right now? How do you like get bone broth and do brand awareness things like get bone broth into uh, if sweet green had like a soup line? Like how do you get bone broth to be one of the core tenants of like, so when someone thinks health and they're in a sweet green, they also see bone broth associated with that. Like that's sort of the new frontier for us, I think that we haven't figured out yet, but we're starting to think about. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You're trying to, you're almost trying to educate people that don't know about it, right? There's the ones who know. Actually, I made it for the first time myself a week ago. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I was like, wow, the cost is a lot more affordable than the kettle and fire. But I don't know if that, again, I don't know if I want to do that every week, plus the flavors and stuff like that. You know, one thing I, I wonder for e-commerce or how you th- you're thinking about it is so many different businesses. I, and I guess there's no right or wrong, but they're like, oh, we did bone broth and we've hit our peak. Like, let's do new categories versus just like expanding what's working. And I know it's something that you, you've talked about and you were, you were doing this interview and this guy was like, hey, sales is really working well. Like, what other marketing channel should I do? And I don't know if you remember what you said. You're like, do more sales. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But like, what else? And you're, you're like, sales. And I thought that was a really powerful lesson and reminder, which is just find the thing that's working and go a lot harder on it. And so I wonder if you're thinking, hey, the soup category is a multi-billion and we're only at, you know, 50 million or 100 million. Like, there's a lot more room for it. How, how are you approaching that? Because that, that also affects your marketing. 100%. I think for us, we look at the way we look at it internally is we have a certain growth rate that we want to hit. And we look at, okay, how big is this category? For us, fortunately, we're in consumer. And so we can see like to the dollar, what is the size of bone broth market in retail on an annual basis? And so we can basically say like, okay, we're X percent of the bone broth market. We're not going to be able to grow at this rate given current category size for more than like four years or something. So let's start looking into alternative lines of business. Let's see like, what other categories we could take the brand into. Because to some extent, when you have a brand that's like resonating with consumers, to some extent, it's easier to be like, we're now doing soup and like taking all the badge out that Campbell's puts into it, rather than like spending a bunch of money, time and energy trying to like grow the bone broth category and make it grow from, you know, instead of 5% a year, make it grow 12% a year or something like that. Because growing a category is just like expensive, time consuming, all that. It can be amazing, like Red Bull basically invented and created the energy drink category. And you benefit hugely from doing that. Giovanni's kind of done similar, but it just takes like a really long time. And so for us, we, when we decided to enter the soup category, we basically saw like the incumbents are doing a bad job. They're putting stuff that we think makes people unhealthy in all of their products. So can we do a better job relative to what the competition is doing? If the answer is yes, it's something we'll consider. But like we still invest a ton of time and energy in our core, which is like our bone broth line, I would say. I think we just weigh trade-offs and talk a lot about like, where do we invest? If I'm understanding you, you're saying like, hey, we did broth. It's really close to this vertical or close to this category called soup. That's even bigger. And we can get a slice of that. And we're not having to deviate too much from what we're already great at. Yeah, exactly. I would say if it's an adjacent move, it probably makes sense to invest or it could make more sense to invest in those in those sort of like adjacent moves. Whereas when you're doing a marketing thing, it's like, you know, if you have a channel that's working really well, just keep doing that. And it would make a lot of sense to me if someone who's like, sales is crushing it, what should I do? If you're like, okay, maybe look at doing some partnerships, which is sort of like sales, but not entirely, as opposed to like doing a 180 and trying to do like SEO or some other weird channel to try and get that to work. I kind of think about it as like, great, we've, we've kind of like proven that bone broth can work. We're now in the category, we're in the game. Where can we go from here to expand and like take more market share? But that's the phase of the business we're at. It would have been a really bad decision for us to 
expand the category like two and a half years ago or three years ago when we were still super young. There's always that question, when do you know to expand the category? You know, because I think some people yeah. don't realize like, they're like, yeah, we've got this many customers. Like we thought about this at sumo.com. It's like, yeah, we got this many people using it. And it was like, that is 1% of the market. So the difference between bone broth and soup, because I put chickens in it, does it suck out the bone stuff from it? Is that not bone broth? I put a whole chicken in with water and with a bunch of vegetables and seasoning and then let it yeah. sit in the Instapot. Is that considered bone broth or is that just chicken broth? That would still be considered bone broth. Generally, did you have like meat on the chicken? I just threw a whole chicken in. Okay, then yeah, that's probably more a chicken soup. Like we make our bone broth, but you take like a chicken carcass and throw that in. So bone broth is primarily made of like the bones and the connective tissue breaking down, which then creates this like rich gelatinous broth. I would say what you're doing is probably just like a dope chicken soup. It was really nice. Well, so two things with that. Number one, how when I saw you guys come out, I was like, wow, wow, good for Justin. Like I was proud of you and I was jealous. I was like, I taught him everything he knows, even though we didn't really work that closely together. And I think that there is a measurement of success where like, hey, have you worked with people that have gone on to do even bigger things than you? But I've noticed that like, dude, there's a ton of these broths now. Whole Foods yeah. has a broth. There's this other broth of a broth. And I guess you, you guys are definitely a category leader, or at least in my mind. How have you guys thought about that? Because part of me is like, yo, dog, I fucking invented this. Like, get off me. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's not fun. I mean, we, we fought a different battle when we were starting the business where we were like, how do we get people to understand what bone broth is and how do we get them to try ours. And now we've like done a really good job of telling people why they should drink bone broth. And there's a bunch more companies cropping up to, to try and make it and serve that demand. And so, and so I'd say that we've shifted from you should have bone broth, you should have bone broth, like that sort of messaging more into like, here's how we're different than the competition, which is quality of the ingredients, long cook times. You know, we've formulated our stuff. We've gotten like four and a half years of reps in just trying to figure out how do we make a really good bone broth. When we launched, our price on shelf was eleven ninety nine a box. Now it's six ninety nine. Like we've like become a much better company. And as we've scaled, we've like kept some margin for ourselves, but we're like giving margin back to the customer. We're making a way better product now than we were four years ago. Like it's gonna take like a lot of time and investment for someone to catch up with us. And so you just kind of hope that you can run faster than the rest of the competition out there which is just like, that's the game of business. Like no one is going to like sit still and let you kind of just like- I wish. Be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think the, the phrase I think about, and I really like how you said it, is just like rear view mirror. Yeah. I think when you're starting to do things, like you have like the coconut curry and you have the, the lemongrass pho, like very unique styles. Uh, and I've bought in a lot of them and I like them. Others are then, oh, I'm going to copy that. And so I think you guys have done a great job. And I, I feel like that with our company, it's like, all right, let's keep pushing the envelope. And these people will just keep copying those parts. It's nice yeah. to have competition, though, because we don't have it as much sometimes in our yeah. business lives. It's like, all right, well, I'm doing whatever, which is also a beautiful part, but it's also nice to have someone to, to beat and to, yeah. to motivate yourself around. Oh, and it definitely gives you a lot of, it definitely is like cause for reflection. I find that like when we first had our, like we had competitors come on the scene, I was kind of like, oh man, is this big initiative that we're doing going to be a good use of spend? Like, is this company going to do the same thing? Like, are they going to think about this the same way? What if we're wrong? Like, what does that mean? It felt like it, it did make us a little bit sharper in general, which was probably useful, but you know, still makes it harder. <laughs> How did you educate the market? Was it the influencers who are educating people on other things and people trusted them? Or how did you guys approach that? It was a mix. I mean, it was a lot of us like talking about this stuff. It was a lot of influencers, a lot of us like emailing people like, and getting in touch with like Melissa Hartwig from Whole30. She talked about bone broth and why she 
uses it, how it helps her digestion, how it helps her gut support, you know, all that. And then she mentioned our brand. And so I think that brands do this a couple of ways. Like some of them invest a bunch of money in PR and social and like all these different channels. For us, it was way more organic. Like we had conversations with a bunch of influencers and it was like, why do you like this stuff? Why do you incorporate it? Can you like tell your audience about the benefits of, of bone broth? And that's kind of the way that we went about it because it felt more authentic. And it also felt like we were solving a real problem as opposed to like, it's really hard to tell someone why your sixth sparkling CBD beverage is like the thing that everyone really needs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that was a big part of it too, is like we could have authentic conversations with people that were really meaningfully setting the conversation around health and wellness. What new marketing channels are giving you a boner and which companies are you impressed with their marketing? I think Shopify has been like blowing me away lately. Just they cover so much surface area and their their marketing message is really strong, but they're kind of a big company. So that's probably cheating to choose a $70 billion public company. So another company I think that is doing a really good job marketing, I think that even though they have a huge budget, Hims has been doing a really interesting job, like where they've bought ad inventory on sites that, you know, like porn sites, like they're spending very little money to get ad spots on porn sites everywhere. They're like sponsoring coasters at a bunch of bars and like very key cities when they're having large events. Like they're just being very, very creative and doing things that I think are hard to scale and, and hard to like hire an agency to do. Like to some extent, I think you're a really good marketer or you're doing a good job marketing when if you say like, hey, I want to do exactly what Hims is doing. There's not one agency that you could hire to replicate that playbook. So I think that was the marketing side. And then channel that I'm stoked on. We've recently seen like YouTube start to work really well. Ads or like sponsoring videos or which part of it? Both actually. Yeah, we've seen both of those start to work really well. I think for me, the channels that I get excited about are ones where there's a gap in how much attention are people paying to this channel versus how many brands are trying to like push money through that channel to drive some sort of outcome. And so in the early days of Facebook, you saw like very few brands advertising on it. Like the hours per dollar, like advertising dollars spent on Facebook were way out of whack in favor of the advertiser. Like people were spending a ton of time on Facebook with very little advertising spend going through that channel. So for right now, like where I think those arbitrages probably exist, Snapchat is like starting to become a real platform. Like I think the dollar to ad budget is probably out of whack there. I think you're seeing similar things with like TikTok. I don't even know that they have a an ad program. And like some of these new channels, you'll be able to lose a bunch of money really easily. But there's also the chance that you're like one of the first advertisers on Facebook, which has tremendous benefits. Fully agree, dude. Fully agree. I think the biggest opportunities in marketing is when there's not marketing on that channel. Yeah. When other people have figured it out, like I remember when Newsfeed came out, we were one of the first advertisers and we were starting to spend a lot. And now it's like everyone knows and then mobile and blah, blah, blah. You strike me as someone who likes to tinker and you like starting and, and now you're running. You're like a, your CEO, like a legit CEO in my mind. I guess I was curious, like, where's your zone of excellence and how are you making sure you're putting yourself in that versus like being on calls or because I think about that with myself, like talking with you, promoting products, like doing quick marketing experience is where I want to spend my whole week. To be honest, I don't have a good answer here. I'm like trying to figure this out right now. The biggest thing I've learned over the last 18 months has been just like hiring people that are better than you and that do shit that you don't want to do. Uh, like we used to have horrendous books because I was the one keeping our financial books. But by the time we hired someone that could actually do that, they did a phenomenal job. And like 
I was no longer doing something I hated. They were doing something they liked and did it way better. I've been trying to f- identify more places like that. And I think now my challenge that we have like a really good executive team in place is how do I tinker in a way that is beneficial to the company? And so I've been doing some experiments with that, like trying to get, there's like a random idea that I want to get off the ground that I think could be cool. It's like, cool, Justin, go try and figure out if you can launch this new thing as part of Kettle on Fire in the next like four weeks. Like that's exciting to me, you know? And so I'm trying to do more of that. I struggled with that as we got to eight figures. I was, I was like, I don't want to be in a meeting. I don't want to be doing Q1 reviews. I don't want to be like doing, you know, HR stuff. It really is finding those people. And then also being intentional about how much of my week is doing a conversation with you? Because this gets me fired up hanging with you. I color coded my calendar. So I don't know if try that out. And you'll see how much your calendar is in the colors that you're really excited to be doing this stuff versus like the you know operational. Then you could figure out how to reduce that. What is some of the wisdom from mistakes that you've made? Because a lot of these you have to go through them to learn it. So any wisdom from the companies that you're like, all right, here's stuff that I've made mistakes and I'm not going to do again. Yeah, it's so funny, man. Like so many of the mistakes I've made are ones that I explicitly read about where it's like, you know, the most expensive hire you'll make is a cheap lawyer. And I like kind of read that. And I was like, Oh, cool. Don't skimp on legal fees. But then I skimped on legal fees and like, got burned multiple times doing that. Like, there's certain things like these, but I'd say the biggest mistake that I've made in general, two big ones is like, I'd say they both fall under one umbrella, which is entering a long term relationship with a partner vendor or individual like an investor or board member, whatever, that it's a long-term relationship that's really hard to break and will have massive negative repercussions if it's broken. Like not being intentional enough and thoughtful enough around decisions that are going to have multiple year ramifications. I've made multiple mistakes in that category and they've always been the most painful mistakes. So like hiring, firing anyone you work with, raising money, signing like multi-year contracts on stuff. And what was the second biggest mistake? Personal flaws. And so, you know, my... One of my personal flaws is like I can be conflict averse sometimes. And so there were times where like I should have communicated information that was negative to people on team or to my co-founders or whatever. And I like held it back because I just felt nervous and I didn't. And that caused later strife or or strain. And so I've worked on that. All right. Two minutes, two questions. One, how'd you build your network? Because I think a lot of people are, I've been able to meet you and Tim Ferriss and a lot of amazing people because of geographically and because I've aimed to help. So I I was just kind of curious some strategies or approaches that everyone can learn from you about how you've built your network? Early on, I pretty much bought into the idea of like, try and be someone interesting. Like I always had kind of the aspiration to hang out with people and build a network of peers and not a network of just like influential people. And so I think the work that I've done is like trying to whatever extent possible, be someone that like Noah considers a peer and not someone that Noah considers like, Oh yeah, that's a guy that I know who like emails me every time I write a new blog post, you know? Yeah, I feel like that. And last one, you have a lot of books in your shelf. What are some more uncommon books that you've enjoyed, fiction or nonfiction? Like maybe the not as, a, as mainstream that you've enjoyed. So I'm reading this one book right now called The Path Between the Seas, which is about the building of the Panama Canal. So that's a fascinating one. Yeah, I have a lot of very random, very random books, like a lot on innovation and stuff. I have this one on like Christian Murdy. Uh, which is like called Total Freedom. Another book on like design, yeah, the time of building. And then, and there, he has another one called A Pattern Language, which is sort of like how humans arrange their environment. It's sort of like a philosophy book disguised as an architecture book. It's pretty interesting. Have another book from the 60s that's the history of Unilever, which is kind of like specific to my industry that I really like. 
And then I, I'm a big fan of like sci-fi. And so Three Body Problem was phenomenal. And then another one is, if you haven't read Red Rising, that's also another incredible sci-fi series. Dude, by the way, have you read one thing I'm still finishing now? Have you read um, One Second After? No. Oh, so good. I'm almost finished with it now. I'll mail it to you. That'd be my treat. Do you do physical or digital? Either, really. I'll email it to you. So I got you as my treat, man. It, dude, it's game changer. I'm excited. Ah, oh, so good. All right, so on some of these books you mentioned, you mentioned so damn many. They were, I was so excited. What was the one about the Panama? The Path Between the Seas. History of Unilever is a book? Yeah, The History of Unilever. It's going to be a hard one to find. Are you on Ryan Holiday's newsletter? I am, yeah. He recommended River of Doubt? Ah, huh, I haven't read that. Oh, dude, it was epic. I didn't, I, it was about Theodore Roosevelt and I had no idea about this guy. I obviously knew he was a president at one point. I'll send you those too. I just finished it. I was surprisingly impressed about it. I'll check that out because he, uh, he's the president during the building of the Panama Canal. So I'm like pretty interested in, in his presidency right now. All right. Timeless way of building pattern language, history of Unilever and the Panama Canal one. Yep. Solid start. All right. I know you have to rock. Dude, this is awesome. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's been real. Appreciate it, dude. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did. If you did, go subscribe to Justin's newsletter at justinmares, that's M-A-R-E-S dot com. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go eat some minestrone soup together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. Before we end, don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I know you already did it, so you can ignore this part. But if you haven't, I give out juicy business tips and exclusive office hours at youtube.com slash okdork. Finally, a couple shout outs to my amazing team. That is Jason at podcasttech.com for what he does. David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen from the Dork team for all the magic y'all do. And a final special shout out to Chris Selzy, who is our Senior Director of Partnership Marketing. What a fancy title. At Absolute.com for everything you've done for the company. Hope you have an amazing life. Have a coffee-tastic day. What's your favorite color?